SOAS Radio. Hello, you're listening to SOAS Radio. I'm Fred. And I'm Almira. And welcome to Professor Playlist. For this series, we've lured SOAS academics out of their classes and into the studio to tell us more about themselves through five of their most loved tracks. In this episode, Almira chats with Dr. Angela Impe as she talks about the relationship between music and ideas of migration, memory, and place. Here's their conversation. Today, I have Angela Impe in the studio. She is a reader of ethnomusicology as well as the convener of the MA Music and Development. Hello, Angela. Hi, I'm How Aram. are you? Thank you for having me. I'm fine. It is our pleasure. Before we get into it, tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you do in a nutshell. Well, I grew up in South Africa and became interested in music at a time that apartheid was raging. Became very interested in music as a form of oral history, as an alternative voice in situations where people had lost access to public voice. So as an ethnomusicologist, my work has always been interested in music as storytelling, as biography, as a form of oral history, and more recently became interested in the role of music in relation to land and senses of belonging, uh, environmental issues, environmental justice, and also in relation to peace building and transformative justice. I work mainly in Southern Africa and also in the Eastern region of Africa, mainly in South Sudan. Lots of of interesting stuff and we want to find out how you got to where you are today. So let's start from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Tell us more about your childhood and how you got started in mm-hmm. ethnomusicology and soundscapes and ecomusicology mm-hmm. and so on. Um, I grew up in a rural area on a small farm on the Mozambican border. In fact, on the Mozambican and Swaziland borders. So I was a child of a two borderlands area. I grew up very close with nature um, and as one of my pieces of music will demonstrate, I had a great appreciation right from very young in the sounds of nature and awareness of one's soundscape and one's sense of belonging being very implicated in sounds. Became very interested in birds, in frogs, but equally I was lucky enough in that area to be exposed to mainly Swazi and Shangan music. So the Shangan people come from Mozambique, but they were living on our side of the border as well. So there was a great sense of the presence of music in my landscape and in my own sense of belonging to that landscape. Unfortunately at the time there were no universities in South Africa. Africa that offered ethnomusicology. I didn't even know there was such a thing. So I went through my whole schooling in music and undergraduate degree, focusing almost exclusively on classical music. I had delusions of grandeur. I was going to become a concert pianist and a composer. But as my university life progressed, I went to the University of Cape Town, which was a very political university at the time. I became more and more aware of what apartheid was about and more and more dissatisfied that the degrees that we were doing were exclusively about English Italian German music and that no one was paying attention to the extraordinary amount of music that was going around us. So I rebelled. I took anthropology as a second major, which was a bit unusual for the time. And then I heard about this thing called ethnomusicology and I went in search of it. I spent a year after graduating basically traveling around mainly in Botswana, in fact, recording music, asking people about their music, but I had no idea where to begin. And I was lucky enough then to be awarded a Fulbright scholarship and went to the States to study African music. That's how ridiculous it all was. Wow. So let's backtrack a bit because you're talking about music, but the first track that you're going to share with us today, it's not exactly a music track per se. It's more of a soundscape recording that you recorded yourself. Before we play it, could you tell us a bit more about why you recorded this and what it means to you and how it sort of shapes your ideas about what music is, perhaps? Yes. I don't have a narrow idea of music as I'm I'm interested in sounds and sound systems. So this is a recording of Reed from 
frogs, teeny tiny little frogs that were living in the marshes below a dam on the farm that I grew up on. When my parents, after 35 years of being on the farm, decided to sell up and retire, I wanted to take memories of the place and I knew that photographs wouldn't do it for me. So I went out and recorded these frogs. These basically are my memory of that place. And I'm a great believer in the power of sound as a form of emplacement. They take you back. They connect you to very, very specific intimate feelings. And I mean, I remember the smell of the exact moment that I made these recordings. I remember that it was evening, that it was um, just after a large storm. There was a musty smell of reeds. And that's the memory of my home that I take with me. And you also want to include a second track that we're going to listen to right after your Mm -hmm. recording. Tell us more about that track. Well, the first track represents where I started effectively, and it laid the foundation for how my career has progressed as a focus on music and nature, essentially. The second track is where I am currently in my career, but has a great resonance with the first. This is a track of women who are based on the borderland, also um, of Swaziland, but on the other side, so they're on the southern Mozambique and Swaziland and KwaZulu-Natal border. They are playing an instrument called Istweletwele, which is a mouth harp. Some people call refer to it as a Jews harp. I don't use that term. It's a tiny little metal instrument you put in your mouth and you change the mouth cavity and pick up the harmonics to produce a sound. So this is music that I studied for more than 10 years on the borderland because these are walking songs. So this, it's an instrument that is to accompany walking songs. And I realized very soon after I met the women who play it that actually their songs were very much about a history of that landscape and it's a very fractured landscape but they hadn't played these songs for more than 40 years for a range of different reasons so the study was very much about memory of place but told through the prompts and embellishments of these songs and ironically they sometimes refer to these songs as similar to the songs sung by frogs in the area so these are songs that are quiet but you use the sounds to draw attention to yourself to say certain things and very often what you're saying is you're drawing attention of men to you these were played by women before they were married. So there was this sort of zoomorphic, if you like, correlation. And all this is in your new book? This has just been published in a book, yes. Yeah. Um, and it's called Song Walking? It's called Song Walking, Women, Music and Environmental Justice in an African Borderland, published by University of Chicago Press. <laughs> I don't eat, 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 I don't e
So on the topic of music as storytelling, as oral history, as autobiography, tell me more about this next track that you chose, track number three. The next track is a piece of music known as Maskanda, the, the genre is known as Maskanda. That's the um, Zulu version of an Afrikaans or German word, musikant, meaning musician. And it relates to men who used to walk around the streets with guitars, sometimes with concertinas or violins, basically wandering minstrels who would sing about their lives and sing about the hardships of their lives. They were people whose homes were in the rural areas, but they were in the cities to work as migrant workers. And they used their songs to sort of sing aloud about home and their cattle and the things that they were missing. So I've chosen this track because the very first time I ever tried to do any real research, which meant going out and recording and interviewing somebody, was with the Muscandi. I had finished my degree in Cape Town. I moved up to Durban, which is a city on the Indian Ocean, mainly Zulu-speaking area. And I was doing one year of ethnomusicology under the directorship of somebody called Fight Elman. And um, he sent me out to go and record. And um, this is music that I absolutely adore. And it's by somebody called Mfazim Nyama, who is one of the top-selling Muscandi commercial artists today. Sadly, no longer with us, but his music I love the most. And what is it about Maskanda that you like so much? What is it about it that speaks to you? Well, it's storytelling, as I mentioned. It's about using song as a way to reflect on one's life and to make known aspects of one's life. It's about extreme creativity. If you want to be known and to be heard, you need to use interesting musical riffs, if you like. You need to be a very good guitarist. But it's also music that's based on a women's bow that I studied at some other stage. So I was very interested also in the gender element, how the foundations of this music was really in women's music, but it was assumed by men, transposed onto Western instruments and created into something else entirely. And I wanted to ask you, what was it like, your first ethnographic recording or experience? I mean, we normally see our professors already with all the expertise, but this was your first time doing it. Was it easy? Was it challenging? What was it like? I hate to admit this, but uh, I did. I used a reel-to-reel tape recorder. <laughs> So that gives me some idea of my age. It was hard. We had this huge ewer. It was a Swiss uh, piece of equipment, very, very heavy. It wasn't something you could do today, but one can be quite spontaneous. You simply put down a, a Zoom tape recorder and you can you know, speak to people easily. It was a whole setup. I was very self-conscious. I didn't speak Zulu very well. The person was very, very obliging. But of course, it was full of fumbles. And sadly, I don't have a copy of it. I think I left the tape in the box and somebody else used it and recorded over it. All the things you told not to do today. Well, let's give this track a listen. Could you announce it? The song is called Uwe Lapi Wamashushu Dali, which means Where are you, my darling? Or Where do you come from, my darling? And it's by the musician Mfazim Nyama.
from your first ethnographic recording into your PhD life and your PhD research. Tell me more about where you did that and what it was about. The American PhD, as you know, is, is a very long process of many, many years of coursework and only at the end do you go out and do your dissertation research. At that time, South Africa was really in, in a, a bad state. It was 1989, 1990. They were moving towards some sort of change, but I wasn't ready to go back. So I decided to go to Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe had gained its independence in 1980. It was in a state of rejuvenation, there were all sorts of wonderful things going on. And I was really keen to see what role music was playing in the recreation of the nation. It so happened that when I went there, two things occurred. The first was I found out that there was a Zimbabwean who was doing the research that I had planned to do. So I stepped back from that immediately. But the second thing that I did was I helped to build an ethnomusicology program in a college that had been the Rhodesian Conservatory of Western Music. My university had been approached for some help, and I was the person who was set in place to develop the academic program. So while I was doing that, I then started looking around for another research topic. One of the things that was very clearly missing in the whole music industry and the popular music at the time were the voices of women. So I ended up working on the history of the music industry in Zimbabwe, but looking specifically at the role of women, the changing role of women. And so the track I'm choosing for this, ironically, is Thomas Mapfumo, a male musician. I've chosen him because his voice was absolutely iconic for the soundtrack of the time. Much of my research was in clubs and with commercial musicians and it was a time of a lot of music and dancing and one of the women that I worked with most closely was a woman called Susan Mapfumo whose music is very very difficult to get hold of she wasn't a relative but she was important because the popular music and the music for which Thomas Mapfumo is known is called Chimarenga in fact she was the women Chimarenga artist and so as a roundabout way this is for the women in Zimbabwe so tell us a bit more about what we're going to listen to the term Chimarenga was used for Liberation War. It referred to a particular music that really developed in the late 60s and into the 70s. Music that was adapted from the Mbira, which is a plucked lamellophone. Some people call them a thumb piano. I don't like that term, but it's what people know. And it was music that was originally for ancestral worship, but then was used to distribute messages of war. The 70s were an extremely creative time for music in Zimbabwe. So there's a lot of localization. There's a lot of adapting of local sounds into more commercial musics. And at the end of the 80s into the 90s, when I was working at what became known as the Zimbabwe College of Music, this was our sound. This was the the music that we all danced to. But it's also significant in that the whole essence of community education, if you like, as we called it then, was about local, looking locally, looking at the resilience, the creativity, the voices locally as a way of building education around that and moving completely away from the imposition of Western classical or any Western sort of educational forms. Um, we had 15 students in that first intake, sadly only two women, but I'm still very much in touch with them. 
Um, which is pretty amazing. Um, and these were students from the whole of the SADC region, so the Southern African Development Community. We had Angolans, we had Mozambicans, we had a lot of South Africans who were in exile, young South Africans, and of course Zimbabweans. So it was a time of extreme excitement, rediscovery, my learning from them, sharing, and something which has sort of laid the foundation for how I like to consider myself as an educationalist today. One more question that I have for you. So you have worked in ethnomusicology in Africa, in the US, and now in the UK. Are there any differences and what are they in being in ethnomusicology in these different parts of the world? The American ethnomusicological scene is very competitive, it's very scholastic, there's a great emphasis on theory. The difference that I would feel between that and the British scene, although I think that the differences are starting to become less and less obvious, but in Britain I think there's a great interest in content, in learning the music, in going to the countries and becoming part of those communities. What I love about what we have here is the international nationalism of the students we have, the students who know a lot about the music by the time they come here, who bring a great deal to the classes and that we can share. The main difference between those two places and then working in a place like Zimbabwe or in South Africa, as I, I taught in South Africa for many years, is that you're right in the middle of the context in which you're performing or, or you're researching and writing about. And actually, I always felt that I didn't ever want to do Africa at a distance. Um, that is a problem for me still. But there was a great richness to working right on the doorstep of what was happening in South Africa and Zimbabwe. All right, so this is Zvadibiringa by Thomas Mapfuno. Yeah. 
after your PhD research, you moved back to South Africa, is that right? That's right. In, um, I think it was 1992, I was ready to return. Mandela had been released from Robben Island. The country was changing and I was ready to go home. When I returned, I really needed to get out of academia for a bit. I wanted to get my hands dirty. I wanted to work on public projects. I wanted to be part of the energy that was happening in South Africa at the time. We knew we were moving towards democracy of some sort. And I was lucky enough to be offered a job as a music programmer and coordinator of a very large city festival in Johannesburg. It was called the Johannesburg International Arts Alive Festival. I had no experience. I had never run a concert before. The first concert we put on attracted, and I'm not joking, 20,000 people. And so it was a big learning curve for me. But it being 1992, it meant that South Africa was opening up to parts of the world that it hadn't had diplomatic relationships with before. We were opening up to the rest of the continent. I had grown up in a South Africa that had no relationship with the rest of the continent. We had no relations with Cuba, with China. There were certain countries that were simply outside of our geographic knowledge. So as the programmer, I was able to invite musicians from West Africa for the very, very first time. I invited Cuban musicians, Chucho Valdez and Irakere. But the next track I've chosen is of Salif Keita, the very iconic track, Sina, to celebrate one of the high points of my experience with the Arts Alive Festival, which was to have Salif on a stage in Johannesburg for the first time. I remember standing backstage and waiting for him and saying, Bienvenue, monsieur. I was so excited. The concert was quite sublime. So this is a, a track in honor of South Africa opening up to the rest of the continent. And it's something, of course, that is not unusual now, but certainly was completely novel at that time.
chopping it at the good bits. Okay, we've got one more track to go before we end this, and it is related to your research in South Sudan, which is something you talk a lot about in our classes. Okay. It's something I remember quite a lot. Tell us more about this track and your research in general. So this represents my work at SOAS. In 2009, that's right, I was approached by a few linguists from the University of Edinburgh who had put together a grant for the AHRC, um, which was entitled Meter and Melody in Dinka Speech and Song. Uh, Dinka is the largest uh, language group in South Sudan, one of 64 different language groups and one of the few languages that has sort of been written down, although the orthography hasn't yet been standardised. They had written a grant that was very much about the tonal value of the spoken language and they wanted to look at how the tonality was reflected in melody. So they called me in as an ethnomusicologist to join them. I wasn't terribly interested in spending three years transcribing music. I'm an ethnomusicologist. I'm interested in what people sing about, why they sing, where they sing. And we, we agreed that I was allowed to do all of that kind of stuff alongside the transcription. So this track is somebody called Gordon Kong. He's a newer musician. We recorded him in 2011, just days after South Sudan had become an independent country. We went out just shortly after the independence celebration and managed to find him and recorded him in a hotel room three minutes before we were due to go to the airport and leave. Um, I like Gordon Kong's music in particular because he sings about peace and particularly his peace between Nua and Dinka. Sadly, just shortly after that recording, there was conflict once more. December 2013, the country went back into a state of civil war, um, but his music resounds across that. What has been important about my work in South Sudan has been looking at song as oral history, as I've been talking about um, for a long time. But because these are this is an area of the world that has been at war pretty much for the last 50 years, many of their personal songs are about the experiences of war, of land, of dislocation. And as most South Sudanese actually live in an oral universe, there's very high rates of illiteracy. The songs are extremely important as chronicles of people's lives and stories of their opinions. And they sing a lot about peace. So this has led me to look at the corpus that we were able to collect in terms of truth-telling, the whole poetics of peace and forgiveness. And I'm writing about that now, like very interested in the performative. And again, to come up with an alternative way of understanding how people communicate, um, taking it away from the privileging of peace communication only through verbal speech and in courtroom situations. But how do people really perform or negotiate peace through song and through performance? So we're going to close with that track. But one last question before we do, which is throughout your journey in ethnomusicology, have you been able to listen in a different way? Have your ideas about listening to music changed from when you started till now? Because you're working in very different sort of universes of oral history and has listening changed for you in any way? Absolutely. It's it's difficult to describe, but privileging listening above all. I realized that it's taken many, many years to get away from my own musical expectations and epistemologies, if you like. And I think in South Sudan, more than in any of my other work, I've had to listen differently because I didn't understand the music at all. In Southern Africa, I had a sense of what the music was about, the musical structures. It was familiar to me. I had a feeling of I could smell the music because it was part of my upbringing. But in South Sudan, it was entirely different. And I had to really, really open my ears. And ironically, you listen also through the way that people talk about their music, through the metaphors that they use, using metaphors like the smells like, or using metaphors of the landscape to describe a musical contour. So yes, it's opened up listening. And certainly that's something I like to privilege in my teaching, um, particularly in the music and development course. Thank you so much, Angela, for coming on our little episode. <laughs> 
listening to episode two of Professor Playlist with Dr. Angela Empe on SOS Radio. Stay tuned for our next episode when we chat with Dr. Bendix of Positive Negatives.